Good morning, Providence. Take your Bibles and turn to Exodus chapter number 5. Exodus 5. I have a confession since we're uh, getting started here. I've, I've actually struggled with a little bit of guilt because there is just so much good stuff in the book of Exodus. And I promised you that I wouldn't do no more than 18 or 19 sermons. <laughs> and uh, now I'm, we're still at 14, but the, the, remember the purpose. The purpose is I want to give you an overview of Exodus because Exodus is the whole Bible. And to understand Exodus, you go to the rest of Scripture and it interprets everything and it helps us with the Christian life. But in the midst of trying to give that big picture, I'm looking, I'm going through, th- oh man, this is so good, this is so good, I wish I could say this, and I just can't. So today is probably about six minutes longer than, than last week because I did have a little bit more material, but I, it's, it's so good. So take your Bibles and turn to Exodus chapter number five, Exodus chapter number five, that they may know that I am the Lord. Bob is Dr. Marvin's troubled but um, lovable mental patient in the movie, What About Bob? He's so needy that he clings to Dr. Marvin at every turn, stopping by his office for unscheduled visits, telephoning him at home in the evening, showing up unannounced to his, uh, at his house, generally making a nuisance of himself. Dr. Marvin is getting ready to go on vacation. He's thinking to himself, how am I going to get rid of this guy? And he comes up with a brilliant plan. He wa- Bob walks in one day and he says, Bob, I want you to take a vacation from your problems. And Bob says, that is a great idea. I'm, gonna t- I'm on a vacation from my problems. Isn't that a great idea? It is. Get in a plane, fly away. The trouble is, the problems don't take the vacation, do they? They follow us wherever they go, and inevitably they get worse, which is what happens in the movie. Bob decides if he's going to take a vacation, who better to take a vacation with than his favorite psychiatrist, Dr. Leo Marvin. And to Dr. Marvin's dismay, Bob shows up on his family's vacation, and the problem's falling right along, and it just gets worse and worse, Right? Well, you know, the, the Bible never encourages us to take a vacation from our problems, does it? That was awful quiet. <laughs> it, it doesn't, right? Rather, we're, we're encouraged to take our problems to the Lord. Because more than anything else, what God wants us to know is His name. God wants us to know His name Not only that, he wants the whole world to know his name. And so we, in the book of Exodus so far, we've seen Moses grow up in Egypt, and he's an important guy, and he takes matters into his own hands, and it was a complete disaster. He runs away from the Egyptian police out into the wilderness of the Midianites and ends up becoming a shepherd there for 40 years. And after 40 years of being a shepherd, He's not even looking for God, and God comes to him, right? God comes to him in the burning bush. This was, last week what we saw was Moses' conversion story. Moses was converted, but with conversion comes a commission. Everyone who is a believer in Jesus Christ also has a commission. We have, we have spiritual gifts and talents and abilities and we all are under a commission from God, we're supposed to go, one thing, and then we're supposed to, uh, all the one another's of the Bible, we could go on and on and on. Well, the Lord commissioned Moses to go back to Egypt and lead Israel out of slavery. And so in chapter number five, we find Moses in the court of Pharaoh, and things don't go so well when he's in court. And here we have an important pattern that everybody needs to see and everybody needs to understand and everybody probably already knows, and that is this. Obedience to God's call does not mean that everything's going to go okay. It's not going to be easy. Ultimately, it will be okay. But in the short term, it may not be okay. That's why the Bible says all things work together for good. It doesn't say all things are good. It says they work together for good. 
Now Mark read verse number 2 of chapter 5 earlier, which records Pharaoh's response. You have to see his response. This is so important. Look at what he says. Who is the Lord? Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. And that is the central question of the book of Exodus. The central question, the central truth, the central question that the book of Exodus is answering is, who is the Lord? Who is the supreme deity who has the right to demand worship from every creature? Even though Pharaoh is an extreme case, we can learn some things from Pharaoh. And I want you to see this. Uh, hopefully you read chapter 5 this week. I'm not going to ask for a raise of hands because I don't need to be discouraged. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, I'm sure most of you read chapter number 5. But think about chapter number 5 with me. And he displays the character traits of anyone who does not believe in the God of Moses. Number one, the, the unbeliever is ignorant of God's identity. Pharaoh said, who is the Lord? Now that was kind of a rhetorical question or not even a rhetorical question, it's more of an insult. Who is the Lord? He didn't really care who the Lord was. It wasn't an honest question. Pharaoh denied that God had any claim on his life, though, didn't he? He said, I don't know the Lord. Moreover, I don't have to do anything he says. You know what Pharaoh said? Spoken like a true unbeliever, because by definition, an unbeliever is somebody who doesn't know the Lord. And it was because of his ignorance that Pharaoh set himself up in the place of God. And the only remedy for Pharaoh's existence or ignorance was a direct personal encounter with the God of Israel. And dear um, person sitting out here, that's what every unbeliever needs, isn't it? A direct encounter with the God of Moses, with the God of David, with, with the Lord Jesus Christ. And until we come to know and to love the one true God, we remain on the throne of our own lives. Every person that you see who is without Jesus Christ is on the throne of their own life. And for some, it may give them an illusion of power, but in the end, it just guarantees disaster, doesn't it? Well, secondly, we see that unbelievers are resistant to God's authority. Unbelief Unbelief, and you must understand this, unbelief is not just an intellectual problem. It's not. Unbelief, it sounds like it, doesn't it? Unbelief is an intellectual problem. It's also a spiritual problem. Because unbelief affects the heart as well as the mind. Look at, look at the verse after Pharaoh admitted his ignorance. He went on to assert defiance, didn't he? Verse number 3. This is the contradiction that lies at the heart of every unbelieving person. People who refuse to acknowledge the living God also defy Him. Atheists hate God. They hate the God that they deny exists. Don't they? And so this contradiction that lies in the heart of every unbelieving person is, like I said, that they uh, refuse to acknowledge the living God, they defy Him. And even the most hardened unbeliever knows somewhere deep down that there is a God. The Bible tells us that. The heavens declare the glory of God. Romans 1, we we covered that a few weeks ago. Often, what keeps, and, and here's a question, here's a question. Why, if they know that there's a God, and they know that He's the supreme God, They're going to have to answer to him, what keeps them from acknowledging him? What keeps them from God? The answer is, every unbeliever wants to keep on sinning. Often what keeps people from their attachment, from God is their attachment to sin. Many of you probably witnessed to people, and they basically said, I don't want to give up X. To become a Christian. They don't want to give up their sin. Think about it. It's hardly surprising that somebody who's pursuing selfish ambition, indulging in sexual sin, or living for material gain 
it's hardly unbelievable that that person would have doubts about Jesus Christ because disobedience also perpetuates ignorance. The Bible says that very clearly. And so the third thing that we see is that unbelievers are often malicious to believers. Pharaoh demonstrated that. His, his treatment towards the children of Israel was, was intense, and it was vicious, and it was just spiteful. It was hatred, you could say. And so we see these characteristics in unbelievers. So, so Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, God said, let my people go. And from there, it went really bad for the children of Israel, didn't it? Pharaoh decided to make things really bad. First of all, verse number 7 says that he will not give them any more straw. They, the, the mud bricks, they were made uh, with, with straw. It's kind of like the rebar in the concrete. Then, verse number 8, they must produce the same number of bricks. Doesn't it say that in verse number 8? And then, also in verse number 8, what did he do? He slandered them. He called them idle. They weren't idle. They couldn't even keep up. It was so bad that, that the Israelite foremen, the foremen of the Israelites, the Israelite foremen, were beaten for not being able to keep it up. And the, the Bible says they realized we are in real trouble here. So here's Moses doing God's will, doing exactly what God told him to do, and it's not actually bad for Moses, it's bad for other people. Have you ever been faced with that kind of a situation? If I do God's will, it's going to adversely affect other people. That's a hard decision to make, isn't it? Now notice very carefully what the people did. What did the Israelites do? Well, look at verse number 17. Or I'm sorry, verse number 15. The foreman went to, to Pharaoh. Look at verse number 15. Then the foreman of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? How ridiculous is this what they did? They went back to the source of their slavery for relief from slavery that's illogical isn't it why go to the slave master for relief from slavery and yet you know what that's exactly what unbelievers do they're enslaved to whatever sin and they just keep on going back to that sin even though they're enslaved to it and it just the enslaving gets worse and worse and deeper and deeper and deeper but as we study Exodus, and this is the important thing to remember, as we study Exodus, we discover that salvation is a means from captivity. It's freedom from bondage to sin. It's deliverance from oppression. And so one of the key things that Exodus truths, that Exodus teaches us, is this, that to be saved is to be rescued from slavery, and let me finish, in order to serve the living God. And in 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 this narrative that you read, every time it's talking about, let my people go so they can serve me in the wilderness, that is code for worship. That's code for worship. And so we are saved from slavery to sin in order to serve the living God. But the Israelites are instead a picture of sinners enslaved to sin. Now you know what the Bible teaches about people? The Bible teaches that everyone is enslaved to sin. We're in captivity. Romans 6.19 says, You once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. Over and over, the New Testament declares that we are in bondage to sin. And apart from the saving work of Jesus Christ, we are slaves of depravity, for man is a slave to whatever uh, that person is enslaved to. And we're mastered by sin. Think about, think about this. We all understand this very well, but just a couple of examples. The angry man is mastered by his anger, isn't he? When something makes him mad, he cannot control his temper. He just lashes out. The lustful man is mastered by his lust. And when, when temptation comes, he helplessly gives in to his craving for pleasure. The selfish woman is mastered by her selfishness. She has no love 
for anyone else. The gossip is mastered by her tongue, and she cannot resist the urge to tell someone the latest news. And so as sinners, we get so used to sinning that we hardly realize that we're in bondage. Sexual sin is bondage. Anger is bondage. Uh, gossip is bondage. Jealousy is bondage. And we don't, we don't even see it as bondage, do we? Sin is the harshest of taskmasters. It always demands more and more from us, and it always gives less and less in return, doesn't it? It's not a good investment. The more a lustful man indulges in his fantasies, the less happy he becomes and the more sex he craves. The more the selfish woman gets, the less content she grows, and she still wants more. And Satan never loosens his grip. He is always busy tightening the chains of our captivity. Always that's what he wants. And what we need is someone like Moses to free us from that bondage. What we need is a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Moses of our salvation. And so one of the principles that we learn from Exodus, number one, is that all are enslaved to sin, and number two, all need a Savior. And salvation, one of the aspects of salvation is freedom from the bondage of sin. Well, let's go to chapter number six. I'm going to set it up for just a minute. Moses is different from the Israelites. Remember, the Israelites went to Pharaoh for release from their bondage. Moses, who is now a believer, where did he go? Well, chapter 5, verse 22, he turns, look at what, what is, is said. And Moses um, turned to the Israelite foreman and said, uh, turned to the Lord, I'm sorry, and said, O oh Lord, why have you done this evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Have you ever met a believer who says, I don't understand why I'm doing this thing, why I'm serving the Lord, because every time I turn around, things get worse and worse. Does it ever feel like that for you? At, at some point, all of us probably have felt that way in one way or another. But what we must remember, salvation is of the Lord, and God did not save us necessarily to make our lives happy here. He saved us to give us complete joy in heaven and to worship him forever and ever and to, to be forever free from the, the bondage of sin in eternity. But look at chapter 6 and verse number 1 to 8. Mark read those, and he did a very good job of reading them. What we find in this is a couple things I want to point out. First of all, God wants his name known. No, notice how many times God mentions his name. Uh, verse number 2, I am the Lord. Verse number 3, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known. Uh, verse number uh, 6, I think it is. Hang on just a second. I'm, I'm looking through my scriptures here. I don't have a mark. Verse number 6, I am the Lord. Verse number uh, 7, I am the Lord. Verse number 8, I am the Lord. Do you think he's trying to get a message across? This is covenant name. Every time you see the word Lord, it's Yahweh. It's the tetragrammaton. Yahweh is what it means. That's his covenant name. And he wants them to know his name, but notice what it's tied to. And this is so important. His name is tied to salvation. Okay? He repeatedly says, I am the Lord. He wanted them to understand that the pro answer to all their problems was to be found in him. Every aspect of their salvation depended upon his being and his character. Salvation begins with, <coughs> begins with God because it came from his grace and it would end with God because it would, be all, it would all be a return to his glory. And if you look at that passage, those eight verses, you see that in there. Whatever difficulties showed up in the meantime... God would be able to handle because he is the Lord. 
And when you're facing difficulties, dear believer, you may think that my biggest priority is to be delivered from my problems. But God's biggest goal is to get you to know His name in your problems. Rather than taking a vacation from our problems, the thing to do is to find rest in the Lordship of God. He is the answer to every difficulty. And your life... I'll say this, may never get better according to temporal ideals, according to your ideas. But he has saved you for his glory, and in eternity, it's, it's nothing but bliss, right? So the Lord, who calls us to trust him, is the God of salvation. Now, he ties his name to salvation, and there's seven times in this passage where he says, I will, and um, he announces the I wills of his salvation. In the beginning of this conversation, Moses complained to the Lord. Look at verse number 23. He complained to the Lord that God hasn't done anything. And how does God respond? God responds by saying, I am the Lord. He was saying, he is the God of salvation and will do anything and everything needed to save his people and there are four promises in these seven I wills, and I want you to see them. Number one, there's the promise of liberation. He says what? I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from the slavery to them. So the first promise of God in salvation is that he's going to deliver us from enslavement. He's going to deliver us from death. He's going to deliver us from slavery to sin and off the burdens that we have. And the main thing the Israelites needed to uh, have was rescue from bondage. And so when the God said, I am the Lord, he was promising to be their deliverer. But there's a second promise in these I wills, and that is redemption. He said, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. That word redeem is a word that's speaking of re, uh, uh, redeeming a slave. It's buying a slave so that the slave is no longer in slavery to this one master. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. The outstretched arm is talking about how powerful God is. And notice how he's going to redeem them with great acts of judgment. Salvation, we're going to see this in a minute. This is a theme through the whole Bible and it's a beautiful theme to study. When God saves, God is also judging at the same time. It's all through scripture. There's another promise, and that is adoption. He says, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. God brought Israel out of Egypt into an intimate family relationship with him. As a matter of fact, remember what God called Israel? He called him his what? His firstborn. You remember that? And guess what? If you are in Christ, you are the firstfruits. You are a brother of Jesus Christ. You are in Christ, and he calls you brothers. And then you have a fourth promise, and that is possession. He says, I will bring you into a land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and I will give it to you for a possession. And you know what the New Testament says? The New Testament says that that promised land for the believer is nothing more than heaven, the new heavens and the new earth. Isn't that wonderful? That's our promised land. That's what we're being delivered to. And so these seven I wills of salvation in which God proves that he is Lord by saving his people, is how God always saved. And it's how we are saved. He liberates us, he redeems us, he adopts us, and he gives us a land to be our very own. Wonderful, wonderful promises, aren't they? The most important point is this, that salvation belongs to the Lord. Now, I want to revisit the theme that I was talking about just a minute ago, and that is this, that, that salvation is always accompanied through judgment. And I want you to turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 6 and verse number 7, because salvation is always accomplished through judgment. And now, please listen to me for just a minute. We have reached a difficult truth, and it is very hard for a lot of people to swallow and I want you to realize 
I am not teaching a theological system. What I am doing, I'm just going to read Scripture to you. And you can either believe it or you cannot believe it. It's up to you. But this is what God says about himself. The first truth that God says when he makes a claim is that he will save Israel from Egypt so that they will know that he is Yahweh. He's the Lord. So Exodus 6, verse number 7, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. So their salvation proves to them that he is the Lord. Now notice another claim that he makes. This is the second claim. Turn to Exodus 7 and verse number 4. Because he also said this, He judges Egypt so that Egypt will know that he is Yahweh. And so if you look at verse number 4 of chapter number 7, he says this, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. And it doesn't stop there. Um, verse number 5. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel among them. So here we have a truth that runs all the way through the Bible. When one is saved, another is judged. Think about Noah. Noah was saved, the rest of the world was judged. Think about here we have um, uh, the, uh, the Israelites we can, go, we can keep going with this, and I'll just go to the ultimate point. And the ultimate point is, we are saved, and who is judged in our stead? Jesus Christ, right? And it doesn't stop with that. At the second coming of Jesus Christ, when it looks like the name of Christ is going to be stamped out, the remnant is going to be totally stamped out, Jesus saves the remnant and does what? judges the whole world it's from genesis to revelation that you see that truth okay now hang with me we're going to go we're going to dive deeper here but we need to see this god even explains to pharaoh what he's going to do look at chapter number nine turn to exodus nine verse number 14 god explains to pharaoh exactly what he's doing for this time, I will send all my plagues on you yourself, he's talking to Pharaoh, and on your servants and your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. There it is in plain, well, Hebrew back then, English now. Next verse, for by, look at what God's claim is. This is stunning. For by now, I could have put my hand out and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off. Basically, what he's saying is, you know what, I could have just cut you off instantly and delivered them out, and you would never have known. But I didn't do that. Next verse, verse number 16. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Is that not a stunning admission that God is making here? The Lord declares to Pharaoh that he intends to be known and glorified in his salvation of Israel through the judgment of Egypt. And he told it right to his face. Stunning, isn't it? As hard as this is to our modern sensibilities, God raised up Pharaoh, hardened his heart, and slays the firstborn of Egypt to show them that he is Yahweh, the Lord. Now, when you read chapters 6 to 14 of Exodus, when you read this, this, this interaction here, you're going to see two truths about Pharaoh. You're going to see, first of all, that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. And secondly, you're going to see that Pharaoh hardens his own heart. Right? Now, that's a difficult truth. Now, some... People try to, please listen, this is so important. Some people try to defend the Lord like he needs to be defended and say that the Lord hardens Pharaoh's heart only after 
Pharaoh hardens his own heart. Like that's a defense of the Lord, like the Lord leaves it. But that's not what the narrative reads. Look all the way back in Exodus chapter 4, verse number 21. God announced that he will harden Pharaoh's heart. Chapter 4, verse 21. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, Moses is in, in the wilderness. When you go back to Egypt, see that, that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I put in your power, but I will harden his heart so he will not let the people go. Now turn to chapter 7, verse number 3. Chapter 7, verse number 3. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in Egypt. And so Pharaoh hardens his heart, but God hardens his heart. Now, this is so important for you to understand. Pharaoh is clearly responsible for his choices, isn't he? But God announced to Pharaoh that he raised him up to show his power. Furthermore, God took responsibility later on. Look at chapter 10 in verse number 1. I'm going somewhere with this, I promise you. But this is important. Then, chapter 10, verse number 1, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants. Now, where am I going with this? The Apostle Paul recognized the astonishing implications of those statements, and he addressed the objections that no doubt some here are already maybe voicing up. And it has to do with how just God is. And so since I can do no better than the Apostle Paul, I want you to read how God def or Paul defends God's justice. Now go to the New Testament, Romans chapter number 9. Romans chapter 9, we're going to see in verse number 14 something. Romans 9, 14, Paul <coughs> answers the first objection. And what's the first objection that anybody's going to raise up? God hardened Pharaoh's heart and then judged him? Well, then God is unjust. And Paul picked up on that in verse number 14, and he says this, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy upon whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. He's answering the objection, that's not fair. That's unjust. But that's not the only objection that people raise to this kind of a truth. The second objection that's raised is this. If, if okay, I hear you, and I see what the Bible says, if God decides who's going to have mercy on, then those people are not responsible for their actions. Wouldn't that be the second one? We're, they're all just robots. Have you ever heard that? They're all just robots. Well, Paul answers that one too. Very next verse, verse number 19. You will say to me, why then does he still find fault? Why does he hold those people guilty if he does what he wants in the previous verses? For who can resist his will? They're all just robots. Isn't that what he's saying? That's the objection that Paul is, is, is talking about. But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath, and to make known his power, has endured with much patience the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. And so they're both for God's glory. So the truth that's taught in Exodus, and you can go back to Exodus chapter number 6 and uh, 7 now, the, the, the truth that's taught 
is that God makes his name known by showing justice to Egypt and mercy to Israel. So guess what that does? That brings up another question, doesn't it? And the question is, well, is what God does to Pharaoh just? Is it just that he raises up Pharaoh just to punish him? Because that's what he's basically saying. Well, this is critical for us to understand. And I would answer this way. No human can successfully give God the glory and thanks due his name, can we? Therefore, all human beings stand under God's condemnation. And so the severity of the judgment meted out matches the unspeakable evil of refusing to honor God as God and render him thanks. Would you agree with that statement? God deserves all the glory because he is the infinite creator. And so therefore, to not give him all glory is an infinitely heinous crime. You see? The only thing that he owes, you know what the only thing that God owes humanity? Justice. That's all he owes. And the gravity of the heinousness of disregarding the infinite worth and generosity of God calls for a punishment that fits the crime. And so, if God does not visit a just punishment, it shows that he has little regard for himself. In other words, this. If God does not punish an infinite crime with infinite punishment, then he is saying, I do not regard my name. Doesn't that make sense? It's exactly what the Bible teaches. As creatures who have refused to honor him as God and give thanks to him, God shows his own great worth by visiting due justice against Egypt, and he shows his love by showing mercy to Israel. That brings up one more question about this topic that we have to answer, okay? And here's the question. We understand that God is just to punish Pharaoh, but doesn't this make his mercy towards Israel unjust? How is that even fair that he gives justice to one and mercy for another? Doesn't that make the mercy unjust? Well, if Israel's also guilty, how can God maintain justice if he shows them mercy? It's done this way, and we're going to cover this question in depth next week. This question that I'm asking. But I'll say this principle of substitution is, is the answer. Judgment falls, we learn next week, on the Passover lamb. Therefore, the firstborn of Israel are saved, but those Israelites who believed the Lord will keep his word and save their firstborn th son through the judgment that falls on the Passover lamb. They're going to put the blood on the doorposts and everything. And this salvation through judgment is by faith. They have to believe that the Lord has spoken and believe that it's enough to slay the Passover lamb and to smear the blood, right? They have to believe that. Of course, we understand that that Passover lamb is a shadow of the perfect Passover lamb who died once for the sins of the whole world. And it is by faith in his shed blood that we are delivered from bondage and adopted into the family of God. I love that truth because we wouldn't get there otherwise. It's that principle of substitution. That's how God's mercy on you is just. You actually need to turn it on yourselves. How is God fair to be, to be merciful to me, a sinner? And the answer is substitution. Well, let's look at chapter number 5, or 7, <coughs> chapter number 7, verse number 5, because we, now we need to get to God's display of his name to the Egyptians. Verse number 5, The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt, and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Verse number 8, same chapter. Verse number 8. Then the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron, 
When Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take off your staff and cast it, take, I'm sorry, take your staff and cast it before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down the staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down the staff, and they became serpents. Notice what happens. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. You have no idea how important this little account is. It is critically important. And here's why. Pharaoh claimed sovereignty over the Israelites, and the serpent was symbol of his authority. Have you ever seen pictures or drawings of Egyptian kings? They always have a cobra on their headdress, don't they? Tutankhamen, I don't know how you say his name, Tutankhamen, uh, however it is, Akhenaton, uh, his grave, there's a golden um, whatever headdress, I'll call it that, with a cobra on it. It's the symbol of Pharaoh in Egypt. And so the staff that became a snake was a direct attack on Pharaoh's sovereignty. Now Pharaoh, since some kind of challenge was coming, because he asked Moses and Aaron to perform a miracle. They were claiming divine authority over him, and so to check their credentials, Pharaoh demanded a sign. And of all the signs that God could have given to Pharaoh, he chose to turn Aaron's staff into a serpent. And, the, and we understand now why. Because God was waging war, not against Pharaoh, not against Pharaoh, but against Satan. And let me explain how. Pharaoh is a type of Satan. Despite their fear of snakes, the ancient Egyptians nevertheless were drawn to worship them. Worship the snakes. They were afraid of them, but they worshiped them. And that's how Satan generally operates. He uses fear to gain power. And serpent worship was particularly strong in the Nile Delta where the Israelites lived. But by finding, and this is so critically important, by finding his security in the serpent god, Pharaoh was actually making an alliance with Satan. I took this out of my sermon because the sermon was long, but all the pharaohs back then had some verses that they recited when they first ascended the throne. And this, this, these royal verses were literally the Pharaoh offering his soul to Satan. He was Satan personified. And so th this background helps explain what Aaron did. When he threw his staff on the ground, he was taking the symbol of the king's majesty and making it crawl in the dust. This is a direct assault on the Pharaoh's sovereignty. It was an assault on Egypt's entire belief system. And let me give you one important principle from this confrontation. The fact that Aaron's staff swallowed the magician's staffs teaches us something about spiritual warfare, and that is this. Even though Satan's power is real, his power is not absolute. Satan cannot have absolute power over you, believer. We understand this from the book of Job and other places. Satan can only do what God allows him to do, right? Well, there were two things going on with the plagues, and we're going to get to the plagues now. I'm going to run through them really fast because I, I think I have four minutes according to my promise to you, okay? There were two things going on with the plagues. First of all, God was shown supremacy over all creation. In fact, the creation account was the backdrop for the plagues. Because Pharaoh, if you remember... His sin was anti-creation. If you back up all the way to chapter number 2, chapter number 1 and 2, you find that Pharaoh was trying to stop the creation mandate of be fruitful and multiply, wasn't he? And that was part of the creation mandate. So he was, his sin was anti-creation. He attempted to curb Israel's growth. And so the plague narrative 
shows a land. Think about this. When the plagues are done, Egypt <coughs> is without people, animals, and vegetation. And it's the exact reverse order of the creation account. Vegetation, animals, and people. It was an anti-creation. God was showing his power of creation. And the second thing that God was doing, he was showing his supremacy over the gods of Egypt. Pharaoh and the Egyptian gods cannot protect their people or land, but God continued the welfare of Israel in the midst of all this. And this declared that, that the Lord can do both. Now, in chapter 7, all the way through chapter 11, you have the confrontation of the plagues. I'm not going to read them. I know you're thanking the Lord for that. I'm just going to briefly mention them, and you can study this yourself. Nile River to blood. The Nile was the lifeblood of Egypt. The Egyptians worshipped the Nile. There were at least three deities in the Nile. Uh, Os Osiris, Nu, and Hapi, H-A-P-I. I'm not good, I don't know Egyptian, so I don't know if I'm pronouncing these right. What are you, and, and that's what they trusted in for their very life. And so, dear, dear person, what are you trusting in for your needs? We face the temptation to trust other things to provide what only God can provide. And that's what the Egyptians are doing. Secondly, frogs. Now, to me, this is the humorous part of the account, wasn't it? Frogs were everywhere. Frogs were in the flour. They were in the ovens. They were in the houses. They were everywhere. There are several frog deities, but one is called Heket. And Heket controlled the frog population, but Heket also assisted women in childbirth. And so God took their deities, and what happened to the frogs? And this is where it gets even more funny. I don't understand Pharaoh. Moses went to him and said, well, when do you want me to remove the frogs? What was Pharaoh's answer? Tomorrow. I would say now already. And then the Bible says that God didn't actually remove them. He made them remove them. He just killed them right where they were. And they, it says they were piled up in big piles and they stunk. The next one, gnats. Now, we're not sure what the gnats were. The word for gnat could mean anything from lice to mosquitoes. But swarms of lice or mosquitoes are not appealing to me at all. And anything in between. This could be attacking, because of the way the miracle was uh, performed, the plague, it could be attacking the earth god Geb, G-E-B. God was challenging their trust in the soil and the gods of the ground. Then you have flies. Flies. I hate flies. This could be targeting the god Kiefer. And Kiefer was depicted as a beetle. And if you look in some of the graves, they have scarabs and beetles and flies. And you know what they are? They're the gods of eternal life. And so remember the Egyptians were sometimes put in a boat, weren't they? They, they, they dressed out the royal grave so that Pharaoh could have a good journey to the other land. And, he, and in there were flies and beetles, the, the, the golden ones and things. And then boils, or I'm sorry, death of the livestock. Can you imagine these huge creatures lying around everywhere and them beginning to bloat and stink? Think about how much work it would be for them to drag a dead cow to a stinking, rotten pile. I'm sure they couldn't bury them all. The Egyptians had all kinds of sacred cows. One in, in Memphis, Egypt, was Apis. And he was a god of fertility. There was also Hathor and Isis. They were symbols of love and beauty. Boils. This is the first plague that directly affected the, the, the inhabitants. This affected Amun-Re, Thoth, Amhotep, um, and Sekhmet, false gods of healing. They were all gods of healing. Today, what are our false gods of healing? Medicine, diet and health. Now, don't get me wrong, medicine's good if you're a doctor in here, I'm not putting you down. But when we over-rely upon those gods instead of the god of the universe, then we have problems, right? Okay, it's not an either or where you put your trust. Hail. Here we see the Lord had salvation for everyone in mind because he, he even told the Egyptians here, look, if you believe my word, find shelter because it's coming. He did care about the Egyptians and the Egyptians, 
And so the Bible records this in Exodus 9.20. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves, his livestock, into his houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left the slaves and livestock in the fields. There were many sky gods you could choose from. Locusts. This is a horrific scene. Locusts came and not a green thing remained, tree or vegetation in the field. Many Egyptians depended upon Isis, the goddess of life, Nepri, the goddess of grain, Anubis, the guardian of the fields, and Sinhim, the protector of pests, or against pests. All these gods failed miserably. And then you get to the pinnacle. And the pinnacle is darkness. Now, why is this the pinnacle? Because the sun god was Amun-Re. And Amun and Pharaoh, listen to this, this is so important. Pharaoh was considered the son of Re, the sun god. He was the incarnation of Amun-Re. And for most Egyptians, Amun-Re was the king of all Egyptians' gods. But the king of Egyptian gods was no match for the only god of Israel, the I Am. And you know what? None of the gods of our culture match our God. Are you trusting the Lord? Are you, has He saved you? Have you trusted in Christ Jesus? If you have, how are you interpreting how things are going in your life? Every time something bad happens to you, are you saying, oh, Lord, must be punishing me? No. Otherwise, that would be true of the Israelites, right? God was actually delivering. What God wants you to know in the midst of difficulty is that He is the Lord and He will save. Lord, we thank You for this marvelous, wonderful passage of Scripture. Deep truths, wonderful truths, and difficult truths all wrapped up in the one passage. I pray that we will take Your Word, that we will believe Your Word, that we will trust the God of the Word, and we will not give in to the temptation to, to run from problems, that we will not give in to the temptation to interpret, um, a God must be punishing me because my life is going poorly, but rather cling to the promises of the God of salvation, that, he, that we have liberty, that we have an inheritance, that, that we have freedom from bondage, that we um, will get to know him and that we have adoption and sonship in the Lord Jesus Christ because these are permanent, these are eternal, and these are glorious. In his name we pray, amen.